0: Uh, 1 Samuel, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17, or tap, swipe, however you navigate to Bible passages, it's uh, about a third of the way through your Bible, maybe a quarter of the way through your Bible. That's not going to help you. Use the table of contents, that's what it's there for. 1 Samuel 17, we're going to do most of the chapter, we're going to leave a few verses for uh, after Christmas. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Socoh, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokoh and Azekah in Ephestamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the Valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them and there came out from the camp of the philistines a champion named goliath of gath whose height was 6 cubits and a span he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5000 shekels of bronze and he had a bronze armor he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. And take these ten cheeses to the commander of the thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it Out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to go, he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaaraim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Oh, well, it's the Christmas season. So it's a time of year when you watch those movies you've watched a hundred times before again and maybe again, and maybe again. Maybe it's your favorite version of a Christmas carol, or maybe it's a Charlie Brown Christmas. Maybe it's a wonderful life. Maybe it's a Christmas story. Maybe it's Die Hard, all of them. Who am I to judge? You do Christmas your way. Uh, We were doing uh, Home Alone uh, the night before last, and and Sarah my wife was remarking on, on something she'd not caught before. And that's one of the beauties of seeing movies over and over, especially ones that have a reasonably competent director. There's always these little things to be discovered. Sometimes you just don't see everything or catch everything the first time. Sometimes, in fact, you don't even really understand the movie the first time. That's not usually the case with Christmas movies, which usually are a little bit more on the nose, although I'm still not sure I've landed on what the movie Fat Man is about. If you've seen that uh, and you've figured out, let me know. I, I think the directors just didn't quite put it all together. But sometimes you just have to watch several times. So maybe I just have to see it a few more. And then the movie starts to reveal itself to you. It starts to come together. You have to get into the mind of the filmmaker. You have to get into the mind of the characters. And you sort of see where it's coming from and where it's going. And, And that's often true with the Bible. too. There are many things in the Bible that I understand better today than I did the first time I read them. There are things I see the second and third and the tenth time through that I missed the first time through. And there are times when I realize I totally misunderstood what it was all about. And this passage, I think, is one of those passages that has tripped up a lot of people. And it might not be entirely your fault because it might be the most famous story in the Bible. And, and if you only know this story with nothing that comes before it, first Samuel one through 16, or you know, First Samuel 18 through the end of 2nd Samuel, let alone the rest of the Bible, which is often how it appears in a lot of children's Bibles. It would be really easy to take this out of context, and many people have. It's become an inspirational tale that, that, that's fit for a halftime speech. In fact, a David and Goliath battle is, is probably more likely to refer to the world of sports than anything else in modern America. Uh, David and Goliath is the uphill battle. It's, it's being able to capture victory In the greatest difficulties. It's never giving up hope. It's perseverance. It's bravery. It's courage. Right? It's all those things. It's Goliath is your debt. Goliath is your struggling marriage. Goliath is your bad grades. Your dead end job. Your depression. Your angry boss. Your angry family member. That obstacle that keeps you from success. Right? But what if I told you it's not? What if I told you you've been misreading and mishearing this story all this time that's that's my contention this morning is that maybe we've gotten this wrong and and that this old famous story this history of of two soldiers in combat is about something so much more something so much better and i'm gonna unpack this story through four scenes i think there's, there's four scenes in this story I want to unpack those. And then I want to present three specific applications for you that I think might change your perspective on this story entirely. So four scenes and three specific applications. There might be some little ones along the way. The passage begins with the Philistines uh, getting Ready a gathering for battle at Soko in the territory of Judah, near the valley of Elah. I know none of these things is going to mean much to us, so I brought a map. It, it helps. And if whoever's on the slide, you just kind of there's a video, just hit it, it 's really just a map. Um, it helps me, at least to remember that these were real events that took place in space and time probably just over 3,000 years ago, or just over, just under 3,000 years ago. And we can identify most of these places. We know where they were, and in some cases still are. That, that orange line re- represents the approximate route that King Saul and the Israelite army would have taken from the capital, Gebeah, to the battle. The green line is the approximate route David would have taken from Bethlehem, and the magenta lines are the approximate routes the Philistines would have taken to retreat to Ekron and Gath at the end of the passage. And you can see Jerusalem about halfway between Gebeah and Bethlehem over there on the right. Uh, First off, for context, there's a little callback here. King Saul had an opportunity to completely rout the Philistines back in chapter 14. If you were with us, you, you remember that story. And he became so preoccupied with making silly rules and and finding out who had broken his silly rules, that he seemingly lost the support of the military and lost the will to fight. And so the Philistines should never have been in a position to regroup and threaten Israel here in chapter 17. But here we are. And the text says the armies were on mountains on, on either side of this valley. But this wasn't a very deep valley uh, best I can tell from Google Earth and things like that is, you know, maybe a couple hundred meters below the, the hilltops, as best as I can, can reckon. So these weren't mountain mountains. But, but, but that's where the armies came together. And, and that's when in, in verse 4 we read, And there, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. There's a lot going on here, uh, just in that verse, and then also in the verses that come with this description of him and his armor. Obviously, the first thing we think about with Goliath is his height, his size. He's huge. Although there's some dispute about just how big he was. Six cubits in a span would make him extremely tall, like, like in the running for world's tallest man tall, like as much as nine foot six tall. Not unfathomably tall, but it's a very large number. Uh, On the other hand, uh, some scholars have made a really good case that we have the wrong numbers here, and and Goliath's height may have been more like six, seven, or or maybe somewhere between those two numbers. The reasons for the difference in numbers gets a little technical. I'm not going to get into it, but But we can estimate, you know, archaeologists estimate that the average adult male at this time was only about 5'3". So whether he's 6'7", or he's 9'6", the bigger point is that Goliath is massive by comparison to everyone else around him. And in the context of the book, we've seen that height matters to people. Height was what made King Saul impressive. He was a whole head and shoulders above all his fellow countrymen. Height was what made David's oldest brother, Eliab, impressive to the prophet Samuel. And now we have someone who makes King Saul look tiny. Goliath is also loaded with armor and, and weaponry. Estimates have his armor weighing about 200 pounds. It's fascinated archaeologists because it seems to be a, a hodgepodge of armor he might have had access to in Canaan, but also uh, armor that may have developed from a, a culture across the Mediterranean Sea in uh, Aegea. Uh, near where Greece is today, and that's where we think the Philistines came from. They were known by some of the other ancient cultures around there as the Sea Peoples. They were invaders. They kind of suddenly came out of nowhere in the records of all these ancient civilizations and started destroying everything across a huge swath of land. Everything is bronze that the Goliath has except the tip of his spear, which is iron. And as a reminder, it's a little piece, it's a little nugget. This is the beginning of the Iron Age. And if you had iron at all, it was a big deal. And so Goliath not only has all this weaponry, but he's got a technological advantage over the Israelites as well. Some people have argued about the, the larger height for Goliath be, because the, that iron head of his spear would have weighed 15 pounds as you'd have to be a big guy to weigh it. And I'm not a student of weaponry or anatomy, but to me, 15 pounds just seems like it would have been out of proportion, even for a very large man. That's just a huge piece of metal. And so I just kind of wonder if he just had that to show off just how strong he was. Because I don't even know, like, can you even wield something like that? But anyhow, it's probably more of a thrusting spear than a throwing spear. Is more of a hand-to-hand combat weapon. And this javelin on Goliath's back, most scholars think now that that was probably a scimitar, uh, a curved sword that were common in the Middle East and the ancient Near East around this time. And and he has a shield with his own personal shield-bearer, which means it was a large shield, large enough to protect the entire body. And so dressed this way, Goliath steps out into the gap and announces his presence, and he announces some terms. He's called a, a champion, which literally means the man who stands between two. That is, the man who stands between two armies. And he says, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Or are you not the servant of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. In the ancient world, it was not unholy heard of that you would send out your best soldier with the idea that the individual soldiers could settle the dispute and save a lot of blood sweat and tears the idea is not unheard of there isn't that much evidence though for this kind of combat in this part of the world in canaan but then again the philistines weren't from this part of the world were they they had invaded that land from across the sea They came from this Aegean region, what we would call Greece today. And so some have speculated that this might not have been part of Israel's history, might have been part of their hesitancy to fight Goliath. They weren't familiar with this idea of combat. Plus, Goliath is huge. So you put those two things together, this does not sound like a good day. He's well-equipped. He had his own attendant to carry a shield. He was intimidating in every single way. But like we learned in chapter 16, God does not look on the outward appearance but looks on the heart. So having already learned that lesson, that is going to be put to the test in this chapter. But the Israelites, they're terrified. They don't know what to do with this. They know they aren't going to meet this giant man out in combat. Instead, they're dismayed and greatly afraid. So that's the... That's the opening scene. It sets up the conflict, and it is a big conflict. It's the Philistines again, and it's the Philistines at their most personally intimidating, and it's the Israelites, God's chosen people, without an answer. Well, that scene shifts quickly away from the battlefield, back to Bethlehem, about 15 miles away, and we're reminded of David, the son of Jesse. And Jesse's now quite old, and you might be too if you had eight children, and the last of which is on the verge of adulthood. David isn't at the battle. Now, by Jewish law, the age for war was 20. So that tells us that David is probably still a teenager. His brothers, at least his oldest ones, are on the front lines. We know from chapter 16 that David has been conscripted by Saul and put into his service as a musician and an armor bearer but with the country at war, <coughs> excuse me, he's going back and forth between serving Saul and helping to manage the family farm with his father's advancing age. And his dad sends him to the front lines with provisions for the family, but also for their commander. It's a, it's a reminder that this is a time when, when Israel was not really organized. They didn't have a giant extensive tax system. There was no payment for the troops. If they were going to eat, or at least if they were going to eat well, it was literally going to come from family sending it to them. I guess we still do this today. We send care packages to our troops. But this is kind of another level. If you're sending grain to your sons to eat, right? And David's dad is concerned about more than just his kid. He's, he's sending food to the commander of, of the troops. He, he wants to see that his people, his nation, his nation's army is taken care of. But we get the idea that these troops are definitely outmatched. And Goliath or no Goliath, the odds are stacked against Israel once again. And David gets up early in the morning. He ensures that the sheep were protected by another shepherd. He makes a 15-mile trek in time for the troops to muster in the valley, and for Goliath to make his morning announcement to the Israelite troops. So he may be a young man, but you can see just what type of young man he is. He's prepared. He's taking care of everybody. He's early. He's a model of responsibility and care and concern. But Goliath came out to taunt and to challenge them to battle. And once again they cowered in fear. But David, seeing this for himself, is He's curious, and he wants to know what's going to be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the approach from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And his question underlines that this is not merely about Goliath. There are bigger things at stake as far as David is concerned. Goliath has reproached Israel, so there's a national interest at stake. But he calls Goliath an uncircumcised Philistine. Circumcision was the mark or the symbol of Israel's covenant with God. So pointing out that Goliath was uncircumcised was pointing out that Goliath was an unbeliever who was separated from God's people and was separated from God himself and was separated from God's good promises. And Goliath had demonstrated that not by defying the servants of Saul, that's how Goliath referred to them, but by defying the armies of the living God. The living God, the God who is actually alive, who exists, who is real, as opposed to the many pretenders and impotent gods of wood and stone that were worshipped by the Philistines. So David understood this is fundamentally a spiritual conflict, not a physical one. If the Philistines wished to repent and worship Yahweh like Rahab had in Jericho many years ago, they were welcome to join Israel. But so long as they worshipped Dagon and Ashtaroth, so long as they sought to mock Yahweh and destroy his people, there could be no peace. And David assumed there would be some reward for anyone who put a stop to this nonsense. It has been going on for 40 days, and there was. King Saul would give his daughter in marriage to that man, essentially bringing that man into the royal family, and making that man's family free. It's probably free from any sort of taxation or penalties from the, the king. And so, boy, what a way to protect your own family's legacy, which seems to be what David is very concerned about. By watching for his father's sheep and caring for his own brothers on the battlefield, he has an opportunity to protect his family's honor and legacy. Now David's very tall and handsome older brother, Eliab is annoyed by all this chit-chat. And in this traditional society with the father very old, Eliab probably functions like the head of the family. And he's essentially accusing David of wanting to gawk at the carnage of the battle. All right? He's basically calling david like like a rubbernecker he's like saying you you just you're like the guy going out 480 looking at the car on fire that's what you're doing here david go home and watch the sheep all right go do the little kid stuff we got man business to do here like hiding from goliath (laughs) and obviously we know it's an unfair accusation david didn't leave any sheep unattended He was there on his father's orders. He brought them provisions. But, you know, maybe this is his first taste of family leadership. And so Eliab sticks it to David a little too hard. Why don't you be on your way, little brother? Not even his own brothers have much respect or concern for him. But David is concerned about the threat and what can be done about it. And so he persists. He keeps asking people about it. He keeps talking about it. And this word that this this kid, David, keeps wanting to know about this gets back to Saul, and Saul calls for him. And that takes us to our third scene. So the, th- the third scene is David in the presence of Saul. And this time not in the capital, not at Gibeah. That's the last time we've had David in the presence of Saul, but here at the line of battle. And David wastes no time. He gets into the king's presence, and he confidently assures him, let no man's heart fall because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul takes one look at David remembers which of his servants David is, and tells it like "Is is, you're still a kid. And this Goliath has been fighting since he was a kid. You've got no shot. But David isn't daunted. David recounts that how as a shepherd, from time to time, a wild animal, like a lion or a bear, would, would snatch one of the lambs. And David's language suggests this happened on more than one occasion. And on more than one occasion, he ensured That lion or that bear did not get away with the lamb. Now, that might sound nuts to us. We're used to having a lot. And when we have something we're worried about losing, we have insurance. But those sheep probably represented the bulk of his entire family's wealth, it was everything. They weren't rich, at least certainly not by any standards that we could comprehend. Each lamb represented his father, his mother, his brothers, their very lives. There was no lost lamb insurance. And I'm guessing that David probably couldn't often save that lamb. If he got that lion, that lamb was probably already dead. It wouldn't be bred the next year or sold at market, but they could eat it. It was nutrition at a time when meat was rare. He brought toasted grain and cheese to the battlefield, no meat. And that meant another lamb didn't have to be killed. A different lamb could be sold. A different lamb could be bred. A different lamb could be raised to be milked. So it mattered. It mattered. And so he hunted down the animal and killed it. As far as David was concerned, he said, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. That's some confidence. But where does it come from? Is he just a pretentious youth who doesn't know his place, who doesn't understand risk? who doesn't really understand the length of time he's going to be on this earth and how danger plays out, we'd be forgiven for thinking that. But that's not David's story because here's his reasoning. He says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So, so do you see that? Do you hear that? Yes, David struck down lions and bears. Yes, David is sure he can struck down Goliath. But he doesn't credit his own self. He struck down lions and bears because God delivered him from being killed by them. Well, that makes some sense, doesn't it? Because honestly, that's not an unexpected result. If you go into hand-to-hand combat with lions and bears, you might expect to lose some body parts. You might expect to lose your life. But David knows that even in the ordinary duties of his life, even in the shepherding of his father's flocks of sheep, his survival, his life and death depend solely on God's protecting hand. So it's not just that Goliath is a spiritual battle. All of life is spiritual and so Saul says the wisest thing that Saul has said in many chapters go and the Lord be with you. Now, Saul didn't even need to say that, though, because of course the Lord is with David. That's how Saul was introduced to David. When Saul's servants told him about this young man in Bethlehem who could play the lyre and could soothe. Saul's soul when God would send a troubling spirit on him. Saul was told that above all else, the Lord was with David. And we know that the spirit of the Lord rushed on David when Samuel anointed him as the new king in Bethlehem. So the Lord was with David. And so Saul puts his armor on David. That's the the very practical reason for that. There's a couple other suggestions out there, but the practical reason for it David isn't a soldier. He didn't come dressed for battle. He literally just left that morning his father's flocks of sheep. He's dressed for shepherding, not for soldiering. And Goliath is well-equipped, and no one else probably is as well-equipped in the Israelite army as Saul. So if we're going to give this kid a fighting chance, let's at least give him the best armor we've got. He's got a helmet, he's got a coat of mail, Saul's got a sword too, but David can't manage them. He says he hasn't tested them, which means he simply probably isn't used to using this type of equipment. And maybe in there also is the fact that, remember, Saul was a big man. And maybe we imagine the armor didn't fit David particularly well. In any event, David takes them off. It's not going to work for him. And so, David's going to go to the battle armed as a shepherd. That's what he knows. That's what he's going to do. He was dressed as a shepherd when God saved him from the lions. He was dressed as a shepherd when God saved him from the bears. And so, God is going to have to deliver a shepherd from Goliath. And when David went down to the brook that wandered through the valley during that wet season, and he found five smooth stones for his pouch to go with his sling, a tool of the shepherding trade. Slings were. They were common ancient weapons. I read the evidence suggests they were usually fired underhand, not uh, not overhand like we oftentimes see in like movies and cartoons. So they're more like softball softball style, uh, rather than you know like over the head or something like that. Uh, they could have used rocks anywhere the size of like golf balls to softballs, and and they often would have fashioned the rocks to be more perfectly uniform a smoother more perfectly round stone would obviously fly more true but you didn't always have that luxury and David didn't have that luxury that day the sling stones that archaeologists have found from this period and this region were generally around baseball sized uh, but being rocks maybe just about twice as heavy And while I've seen wildly different estimates of how fast they could be slung 70 miles per hour, seems to be one of the slower estimates I've seen. Some modern throwers can get up to 100, but one of the big factors is how tall you are and how long the sling then is. And, you know, people were shorter back then. But but you're throwing something twice as heavy as a baseball, the size of a baseball, 70 miles an hour, ancient accounts suggest that the best slingers had something nearing pinpoint accuracy. We are talking about something that was not a toy. It was a deadly weapon. It would have kept a thief or a lion at bay if you saw it first. And so going out to the brook and leaving Saul's presence, David brings us to the final scene of this passage, and he leaves the brook to meet the Philistine and Goliath obliges. And when Goliath takes his first look at David, we read he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And we might imagine that Goliath is disgusted because this neophyte will be his only trophy from the war. There's not going to be, a for Goliath, no heroic battle over a powerful-looking combatant like Eliab or King Saul. Instead, it's this small, insignificant, inexperienced teenager and that's not going to give him much in way by way of bragging rights back at the campsite tonight so he's disappointed but Goliath does his thing and he heaps his insults on David making fun of his staff that seems like a mere stick to the large man and promising to leave David's body rotting in the field as an undignified death but David is resolute he says you come to me that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. If you want to understand this passage, if we understand this battle, if, if we want to understand the story of David and Goliath, we need to understand these words because David spells out to him what this is all about. and He makes two points. First, he says David's or excuse me it's Goliath's weapons though they're bronze and iron they're the physical weapons of war but his weapon David's weapon is God that's where he takes his stand it's so like you come at me with all these accoutrements of war but I come at you with the name of the Lord uh, he doesn't say, I come at you with a staff and a sling. He says, I come at you with the name of the Lord. Yeah, David's armed. Not nearly as well. But that's not what he's relying on. He's not relying on his arms. He's relying on his God. Second. Second he'll not only strike down Goliath, but the better part of the whole Philistine army. Why? Because, in his words, he wants all the earth to know there is a God in Israel, and so that his fellow soldiers will know that it is God who saves and not weapons. In other words, he wants people to know who God is and what God is like So that they trust in God's power. That's his goal. And he's firm on that because the battle is the Lord. David is consumed by God's glory. David's not consumed with his personal glory. David's not consumed with his personal honor. David's not consumed with overcoming the personal obstacles in his life. David is consumed By giving God the glory as far and as wide as he can spread it. That's what this battle is about for him. And so that's what that, that was that. David runs toward the battle. He grabs a stone. He slings it. He does not miss with excellent marksmanship. He hits Goliath in one of the very few places he was unprotected his forehead, probably killed him. It certainly incapacitated him. And David takes Goliath's sword and removes Goliath's head. Yes, it's gruesome, but it was one of those ways that you could prove someone was really, really dead in the ancient world, especially from a few hundred meters away. And with that, this whole idea of one-on-one combat, winner-takes-all, falls apart. The Philistines refused to submit to the Israelites, and the Israelites refused to let them live. Even when this was tried in the ancient world, we have no idea how often it actually worked out the way they said it was going to. It may have just been one of those things like they had this romantic idea that they liked how it sounded. We don't know how often they tried it and it actually worked out the way they said it was going to. But it certainly didn't work out here. The Israelites routed the Philistines, chasing them some seven to ten miles along two different routes back to Gath and Ekron. And when they return, they plunder the remains of the the camp. And David does something interesting. I'm not going to spend too much time here, but he takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem and takes Goliath's armor and puts it in his tent. Now, the second part of that is debated, but I think it's most likely that David plundered Goliath's tent personally and took it for himself. But on that first part, it's weird because Jerusalem didn't belong to Israel yet. It was a city they had not managed to conquer. It was controlled by a a people known as the Jebusites. So why would David have done this? And and so it's, it's a little speculative. But one suggestion is that by announcing the defeat of the mighty Philistines, mightiest warrior David was putting the Jebusites on notice that their time was up because it was going to be David in just a few years a few decades who would be back to take Jerusalem and make it the capital of the kingdom but whatever David's reasons for going to Jerusalem it isn't just David who is victorious that day is it it's all of Israel All of Israel is victorious because David defeated Goliath. And that's a great place to jump off for application. I said I have three applications. And so let me start there. And the first one might sound a little familiar if you've been following along because it's similar to the theme from 1 Samuel 14, the beginning of 14. In that passage... In in chapter 14, verses 1 through 23, Jonathan, King Saul's son, stepped out in faith, faith in God, and as a result, Israel had a great victory over the Philistines. And I suggested that the big idea there was that the Lord saves his people through the faithfulness of one man. Something similar is happening here in, in chapter 17. But I think we can get more specific with the more specific threat that Goliath represented and the more specific hope that David represented. Like I said a moment ago, Goliath represented absolute defiance of the God who made him. He worshipped false gods. He mocked the God of the universe. And his stated goal was to kill David and to make God's people serve him and his people. He wanted to make God's people serve the wicked interests of wicked people. That was his stated goal. This was, like I said, a spiritual battle. David understood that. David was God's chosen king. He wasn't recognized as king yet. Saul was still recognized as the king. But God had rejected Saul and chosen David. God had promised to save his people through David, even though they didn't recognize him yet. In time, that would be more true than David could comprehend. Goliath then was representative of something that troubles all of us, that that plagues all of us, that like the Philistines, oppresses us and threatens us over and over to make us its servants and kill us. And that thing is sin. Sin is, at its heart, defiance of God. That is the thing that Goliath embodied. It's a failure to recognize God for who he is and and to give him his due in worship and obedience. And, And just like Goliath, threaten to make Israel his slaves sin threatens to make us slaves in fact it does make us slaves jesus said it himself and he put it very bluntly in, in john 10 8 10 truly truly i say to you everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin sin has a power over us to to capture our hearts to own us and then to bend us further and further against god and that's the condition of the human heart and the israelites they were already there weren't they they were already cowering in fear of goliath That that was just one step away from losing in battle and being slaves of the Philistines. And, And their fear came from a lack of faith in God. That lack of faith, that lack of belief that God could rescue them was in itself a sin. And whether he knew it or not, Goliath was taking advantage of their faithlessness to lure them further and further into sin. But David didn't rely on his own strength. He relied on God. And God delivered not just David. God didn't just deliver David, but God rescued all those who rallied around David's victory. Right? One day, about a thousand years later, a descendant of David a son with the right to the throne would be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. He would be faithful to his heavenly father in all things, and sin could not touch him because he never let it close. But this king, his name is Jesus, went into the battle for us nonetheless. He went up to the giant called sin, and he did something David couldn't dream of doing. Jesus said, sin, you have no claim on me but I'll give you my life if you let my people go free. And so Jesus died on a cross to defeat sin for his people. But it was a gambit because, because he rose from the dead. He, he defeated death. He defeated sin. He slayed sin even as David slayed Goliath. And so the Apostle Paul writes about him, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. But like with David, all who rally around Jesus share in Jesus' victory. So, so hear, hear what else Paul said. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So, so let me parse that for you. He's saying that Jesus was victorious over sin itself. And, and, and that very thing that will spiritually kill you. That's what sin does. It spiritually kills you. But if you rally around Jesus' victory, which took place ironically in his death on the cross, you get in on his salvation, you get in on the spoils of his victory. you get in on the eternal life Jesus now lives before God the Father. the The story of David and Goliath is not a story about a slave the tough obstacles in your life it's a story about how God rescues his people from oppression through faith. And it foreshadows God's ultimate rescue of his people from the ultimate oppression, which is sin, through faith in Christ. Those who place their faith in Christ and his work on the cross share in the spoils of his victory. Jesus is our giant slayer. And our greatest giant is sin. That's the good news of the Christian message. The good news of Christianity is not that there's a magical formula or an uplifting message to empower your next success. I wish that were true, but but you know what? That would be so shallow. Shallow. What we have is actually so much better because it's so much longer lasting. It's eternal. It's so much better to hold on to. The other thing, it's it's a lie. It's it's an easier thing to sell, but it's not true. But this is a better promise. The good news of Christianity is that there's a warrior who's already won the battle. His name is Jesus. Jesus. And the call on you, the question before you is, will you rally around Jesus by faith? If you do, you get in on the spoils of his victory. If you don't, you don't. On one side is life, on the other side is death. Second application. This follows from that one. God saves his people. Who are God's people? His church. God calls his church the body of Christ. it's, It's like the church is the physical representation of Jesus on earth. That is how much Jesus associated himself with his people. That's how closely his people are tied with him. So when Jesus wins, his people win. Because his people are quite literally attached to him. And how do you join his people? Well, you join his people by faith. Now, in David's day, things seemed really bleak. The threat of the Philistines was really real. It was scary. And there are times and there are places in history where things have been very bleak for God's people. We prayed this morning for Vietnam, a place where, where churches theoretically must be registered with the government where they are still sometimes harassed and have their meetings broken up and have leaders detained, telling people about the Christian faith remains prohibited. These are real concerns of real Christians in 2022. David was a warrior shepherd, but Jesus is the good shepherd. And in John 10, he promised, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he continued, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I don't know what dark days may lie ahead for the people of God, for Jesus' church, but we will never perish. So to our brothers and sisters in Vietnam, you will never perish. To our brothers and sisters in Myanmar, you will never perish. To our brothers and sisters living under the eyes of the cartels in Mexico, you will never perish. To our brothers and sisters living in Qatar, you will never perish. And, and, and should persecution rise up on the shores of this country and these things can change quickly. We've seen how fast history can change these last few years. Brothers and sisters, you will not perish. No Goliath, not even Satan himself can snatch you from Jesus' hand. This is the confidence that Paul expressed to his fellow Christians in Rome when he writes will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So brothers and sisters, we can have complete confidence in this life that nothing can separate us from God. And so we do not need to live in spiritual fear. Third application, and I'm going to try to make this brief, but um, I could say a lot on this. Uh, If Jesus can slay sin with a capital S, that is the the powerful force that compels us to commit sins and inclines our heart toward evil, then certainly we can slay a sin with a lowercase s. I don't mean that as a comparison. I don't mean that if Jesus can do this big thing, then certainly we can do this little thing. I mean that if Jesus has broken the thing that wields the power, then there is a possibility of escape. Now, if you're not a Christian, then you are under the power of sin and there's no escape. But if you've rallied around Jesus, you share in his victory over sin, there is a possibility of escape. Sure, you could look for the nearest Philistine village and see if they need any slaves. You can do that. But you don't have to do that because the Philistines have been driven out of your heart. They no longer rule. Do you get that? Now, of course, we can't do that except by God's power. But guess what? Jesus promised to send us his Holy Spirit. And so here's how Paul teaches us in Romans 8. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's possible to have victory over the individual deeds of the body by the Spirit. Because Christ has already won the victory over sin. We don't need To live with a, woe is me, I'll always be a sinner, I'll always struggle with this sin mentality. You won't be perfect in this life, I'm not saying that. But the Holy Spirit has come to do something. He's come to make you holy. There is a victory that Jesus has won and he wants to share the spoils with you. A victory that includes progressive holiness. You can get in on that. And we could say so much about that. But this morning, I want you to know, if you are a Christian, I want you to believe that God, because Jesus has won the victory, God empowers you to have victory over sin. It's possible. David and Goliath is not about your difficulties in your marriage and your debt and all those little things. David and Goliath is so much more It's a reminder that God gives the victory. God gives the victory. And Jesus has won the ultimate victory over sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the battle is yours and that we can confidently trust that you will deliver May those who know you rest in it. And may those who do not know you find rest in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing one final praise to our God.